Second Samuel this morning. I know I'm, I wonder if I'm throwing you off if you're not sure what we normally do. Normally your Bible just automatically opens up to Psalms because we've been, we've been there for a while. We really are in, still in Psalms today, though we're in Second Samuel because we're in the context of Psalms 51. We're going to do something a little bit unusual for the next month. We're going to slow down in the Psalms, and we're going to break Psalms 51 up into pieces. And so this week, I want us to see the context, and so we're just going to jump right in this morning and get to it. So let's pray together. Lord, as, as we open your word, we acknowledge this is your word. It's, you have ev- given us everything we need for life and godliness, and, and here is life, and there is life in Nowhere else can it be found because in this book we learn that you sent your son for us. And so, Lord, today as we open up, we're going to look at a part of David's life that to some degree makes us scratch our head and then the other part says, Lord, that's me. That was me. That is me. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see gospel hope and then we would come to your table in just a few minutes and remember that which we've been singing, that our only hope is you. Speak to us today through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Samuel, we're going to be looking at chapters 11 and 12. We're going to be looking at the story that we, we most of us know very well, the story of David and Bathsheba, for that is the context. Now, I want to grab this right here. If you, if, you, if you don't have this, a copy of this, as you go out, it's on the left where our info guides and everything in. What we're going to be doing for the near future is going to be teaching you how to study your Bible. And we're going to be doing that by studying our Bible. And, uh, and so, simply today, if you've got this with you, the first question says... We're asking this question about Psalms 51. Is there a historical context, a background or event that this psalm is based on? If it is, what is it? We're going to answer that question today in 2 Samuel 11. And so this is the only time that I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles. I promise today we're going to stay in the story. I want you to turn to Proverbs 3 just as we get started. Proverbs 3. Remember, Proverbs is written to give us principles of life as a Christian. How do we live these basic principles that we as God's people should live by? As it were, a father writing to a son, trying to help him understand how, what he desires for his son to live by. Look at verse 11. This is really important to understand. If, if you don't understand that we're talking about Sin inside the camp today. We've, we started that last week. The sin, what happens when God's people sin? And God's people do sin. Proverbs 3.11 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So we're going to talk about the fact that the Lord rebukes his own. We don't like that word rebuke. Doesn't sound very, very friendly, does it? Old and New Testament, we get this picture. And what God is going to do in the lives of his people, 
is he's going to expose their sin and he's going to correct them. It's good news today. By the way, if, if you don't do that to your children, you have no warrant to say that you love them. That's the principle that Scripture teaches, and we do. The main idea, the Lord graciously rebukes His people when they descend into the displeasing deceitfulness of sin. That's what we see in David's life. There's a context this morning, and it's a descending nature of sin. Sin goes in a trajectory in your life and in David's life, and it never fails. It is consistent, and it always descends. If you're an addict, you will want to take more drugs. If you get hooked on sexual pornography, it will go deeper and deeper, and though you look at an image, you will find yourself in pedophilia. That's the... That's the descending nature of sin. It doesn't fail. This is the nature, and David finds out. This is not just us picking on David today. This is a picture of what happened in Israel. This is a, what a picture, if we're honest, that at some point has happened to us. And if you don't think it has, you might be in it right now. Where does this begin? Well, it begins... Back to 2 Samuel. I guess I lied to you. I didn't mean to. I want to. We want to start in 2 Samuel 8. In other words, I want to give you the context for the context. It's really important for us here at, at Battleground to understand why we're reading what we're reading, what it means. 2 Samuel 8. Look at verses 11 to 12. It just sort of summarizes what's going on in the life of David. David's experiencing victory. This is important. <laughs> Understand why we asked ourselves, how does this happen? Things are going really well for David. I mean, look at all these, these different countries. Look at verse 12. He's experienced victory from Edom, from Moab, from the Ammonites to the Philistines, Amalek. Look at the end of verse 14. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's important to the context. This is where it begins. He's experiencing great victory. And, and we have in this list, if you look at verse 12 there, you see the Ammonites, they're going to come to the surface. So turn with me a couple chapters over to 2 Samuel 10. And what you're going to see is David and the king of the Ammonites get along fine. They have a good relationship, but that king dies. And when that king dies, the son takes his place and so David sends a group of guys over to the Ammonites to say, hey, listen, we just want to express our condolences for the, your, your king and his, and his death. And so he sends a group of men over there. And some of the sons, the son and some of his counselors says, listen, they're just coming over here to spies out. They don't mean any benevolent. Don't, don't be fooled by that. And so these men come in. They shave off half their beard and they strip them down from the waist down and send them away. Well, needless to say, this means war. <laughs> and that's what happens. This is the context for how we get to 2 Samuel 11. God gives victory here. The Ammonites, they end up in chapter 11 and verse 1. We see that they have all but defeated the Ammonites and have their city besieged. The besiegement of this city is part of the context for what, how David gets himself in trouble. 
So look at this. Just stop for a minute and say, look at all this victory. I mean, if you read it, it's victory, 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 victory. How in the world could David go from such victory to becoming a murderer and an adulteress? David conquered Goliath. He conquered the Philistines. He conquered Saul. Now we see the Ammonites. Only to be conquered by his own lust. This is reality, brothers and sisters. What began in victory and blessing quickly descended as David descends in displeasing and deceitful sin. Let's look at the descent. Chapter 11, verse 1. says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servant with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Listen, this is important. It's what the narrator wants you to grab a hold of. But David remained at Jerusalem. That's, that's the key point. The narrator wants you to grab that. He's supposed to have been with his men, but he remained. The kingdom is established. There's victory. They had already had some victory over them. I mean, when David walked down the street, the Rocky theme song played in the background. Everybody loved David, probably including David. So what happens? And so what does David say? Joab, boys, y'all got this. David's tired. David needs some me time. This little me time, I want to sit on the couch. I want to watch Netflix. I got this. I got 25 seasons. I haven't watched it yet. I'm going to watch them all. So you just go and just let me know how it goes. You got this. David, let, what does David do? He takes his guard off. He takes his sword down. He Goes and lays around. Why is this so dangerous? He worked hard. Because we, just like David, have a tendency to forget how dependent he was on God. We can, in the midst of victory, begin to assume that we caused it, or at least we deserve it. This is the beginning. You remember 1 Corinthians 10, 12? Don't, don't turn there. Just listen. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is, not, this is exactly what David did not do. So what does David do? He stays at home instead of going with his men, and he puts himself in a place to be tempted. That's verse 2. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. There he was sitting on his couch watching, watching Netflix, right? Taking him a nap or something. And was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. I love the Christian standard Bible here. It says that he was strolling around on the roof. You might say he might have been trolling around on the roof. We all know this. Likely this wasn't his first stroll. Keep in mind here, the story is not about Bathsheba. The story, the indictment, the story is about David. Bathsheba was not doing anything wrong here. She was doing exactly what the law commanded her to do. This was part of the custom. And David was doing nothing more than being a peeping Tom. It was her beauty, not Bathsheba, that tempted him. If he had been 50 miles away with his, with his boys... It would have been a little bit harder to engage this temptation, wouldn't it? 
But he was taking it easy. This is the, there's a couple of principles here. Don't miss them. It is easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. You know what your greatest strength is? An awareness of your weakness. That's your greatest strength. <laughs> a person's greatest strength is an awareness of their weakness. And so I'm not going to put myself in a place that I may not be able to resist instead. And notice the Bible always tells us sexual sin. Run from it. Because we're not strong enough to resist it. We don't put ourselves in those places. But David didn't. And David's eyes began to wander. What was David doing? He was staying up late after, after his spouse went to bed and he was surfing the internet. That's basically what he was doing. No one around, no accountability, just, just playing around on YouTube and just seeing what pops up because I can't sleep. That's our context. David's context is that he got up from a nap and went on the roof and started looking down at all the rooftops. He knew what went on, what went on on rooftops. He sees the beauty of Bathsheba. And he inquires. This is the next step in the descent. He inquires. Who is this? Verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said. Listen. This is another important point the narrator wants you to grab. Is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. The text. The narrator wants us to understand. She was not an object she was someone's daughter. She was someone's wife. He does not heed this. We see in verse 4 and 5, and this language is intentional. We're going to see it in a minute. A minute. Verse 4, so David went, sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. She sent and told David, I'm pregnant. He took her. That word can mean multiple things depending on the context. We're going to see a little bit of the context in a minute. It means he fetched her. There's even in Scripture legal connotations. You, you see it sometimes when it says, he took a wife. We see the sin. It was quick, wasn't it? He gets up from the couch. The next thing you know, he's having relations with one of his faithful men that served at the pleasure of the king. Why is this, you know, well, he made a mistake. You ever notice that every movie we almost watch, every murder mystery always has an affair in it, doesn't it? It becomes commonplace. Probably because it is commonplace in our culture. But notice this. This is important. He is the king of Israel who has been given a charge to rule with the laws of God. And listen to what God's word says. If a man commits adultery with his wife and his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 20 verse 10. And he's the king. The problem, right? You feel that? What am I going to do? The descent only quickens. As the descent goes to deceit, as he tries to cover it up. Verses 6 to 24 is simply the cover-up story. David, David being the problem solver that he is, goes right into work. 
Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked Joab what was, going, what was doing and how the people were doing. He's basically saying, tell me how the war is going. I just want to know. You see the deceitfulness. This is basically, he's got three plans. He tries plan A, don't work. Tries plan B, doesn't work. Goes to plan C. Plan A and B are really the same. Make your eye think it's his baby. He just tries two different strategies to accomplish the same thing. The first one is he simply says, Man, you've been out work, working hard for me. You need to enjoy a night with your wife. So here I'm going to send you a gift. I'm going to send a gift bag to your house. Go enjoy being with your wife tonight. Verse 9, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants and lords and did not go to his house. In other words, plan A didn't work. Look at the end of verse 10. David asked him, Why didn't you go down to your house? Listen to this. This is just who David should have been. Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah dwells in booze. In other words, he's saying, the presence and power of God is out there with the people in a tent. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah is valiant. He is noble. He is committed to his God, to his mission, and to his men. That'd preach a message right there, wouldn't it? Plan B, let's get him drunk. Verse 12 and 13, that's, that's what he did. He says, well, let's give it another day or so, and I'll send you back. But then he invites him, verse 13. And David invited him, he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And did he go into his wife's house? No, he did not. He went and lay down on the couch with the rest of the servants. You see how quickly the story does? What does David do in the morning? Verse 14, he simply writes a letter to Joab. What he said, set your eye in the forefront, verse 15, of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He wraps this up, seals it with his ring, and sends Uriah's death warrant with Uriah. Takes his own death warrant. And just remember, this city was besieged. The purpose of besiegement was just to sit back and starve the people to death. But there was some fighting going on as, the, as they tried to break the lines of besiegement. And so that's where Joab puts Uriah. It works. Plan C works just like he hoped it would. Uriah is dead. Not only him, but some other men was killed as well. So just pause for a minute. Do you see how quickly this happened in David's life? This deceitful descent was quick. Did he take a nap that day and think when he got up that he would end up being an adulterer, a conspirator, a murderer, and a hypocrite to God's people? He didn't. You see, sin took him deeper than he planned to go, kept him longer than he wanted to stay. And brothers and sisters, it is simply one click away, one decision away, one relationship away. 
And after this happened, look at verse 25. David rationalizes. What does he say? Messenger comes, tells David what has happened. He rises dead. He sent the messenger back to Joab. says, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. He said, Joab, don't worry about it. Man, this is war. This kind of stuff happens. Press on. This rationalizes the murder he had just committed. However, I don't know if your translation says that. The ESV says, end of verse 27, but the thing that David done displeased the Lord. Some translation says, however, however, what he did, God saw it and it displeased him. We're going to see what that word means, displease. It's connected to evil. God sees the rebel against his covenant. And this rebel against his covenant is the very king, the very seed. Before we go forward, we need to just stop for a minute. You know, most times bad conversations start with asking the wrong questions. So let's ask the right question. At this point, what should have happened to David? What did David deserve? Death. That's what he deserved. And listen, before we begin to look at some consequences, and they are sober, we must understand that what David deserved at this point was absolute justice. And every time we have despised the Word of God, we deserve it as well. Remember what happened to Saul when God removed his spirit from him? Oh, how much we... Neglect God's preserving grace in our life. Saul did. God could simply have left David to himself from this point on. And David would have simply continued to descend. We don't see this about sinful nature. And we must. You can understand the beauty of the gospel that we have begun to sing about this morning. And the table that would come unless you stare into your own depravity. But instead, this is good news for David. But instead, the Lord graciously rebukes David. You see the grace? I want you to see that. And it's hard this morning, I know. Got to start off with the fact that David didn't deserve anything but death. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and that was grace. This rebuke is an intervention in his dissension. <laughs> He wouldn't have intervened. He would have descended. This was an exposure. It was a correction. All of that is grace. I want you to see the grace of God's intervention in sending Nathan. He sends him. And how did he, how did he rebuke him? This is so Jesus-like, right? It's like reading the New Testament. He comes in. Nathan says, King, I got a story. Tells him a story about two men. One was wealthy and one was poor. One had a lot of sheep. He had a lot of herds. They were everywhere. But the poor man only had one little lamb that he had bought at great price. 
And he had raised it. And he had put it in his lap. And he would feed it. And it was part of the family. Verses 1-6 to says it was like a daughter to him. And one day a traveler came to abide with a rich man. And the rich man did not want to kill one of his many that he had. And so he went and looked at verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. Listen to this language. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Did you grab that? Look back at chapter 11 and verse 4 where it said, So David sent messengers and took her. That's what he used. He used a story. Look at verse 5. David gets angry. You know, he's got his king hat on. David's angry, kindled against whoever this man was. And he says, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. (laughs) What did David deserve? Death. This man deserves to die. And he shall, verse 6, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did these things and because he had no pity. David right on, right on point, isn't he? Good king. Put his finger right on it. He took her. He killed him because he had no pity. You see, there's the grace of this intervention. And there is the grace of truth because despite all of what Nathan could have said and how easy he could have said it, he looked at the most powerful man in the land and he said, you're the man. I'm talking about you. Just a question. What could have happened to Nathan at this moment? Lost his head. That's what could have happened. If you read the prophets, it happened many a time. Instead, he leans in He gives David a God-centered smackdown. Notice this. I want to just point the God-centeredness of this. This is all grace. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you the king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it was too little, David, I would have added to you much more. That's grace. It's truth. He didn't deserve. Listen, what he's experienced right now, he did not deserve. Look at verse 9. What does it mean to displease the Lord? Verse 9 tells us, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? That's what it meant to displease him. He, did, he despised his word, and he done what was evil in the sight of God. So today, as David sat on his throne, was sitting there because of God's preserving grace, you're sitting here in this room today for the same way. God's preserving grace in his life because God intervened into your life. Question for us as we continue with the story. Are we despising that grace this morning? There is a soberness that continues here. You notice the way it goes. He says, tells them a story. He says, you are the man. Thus says the Lord. Look at what I have given you. Look at the grace that you have been given. And in verse 10, without even a breath, he says, now therefore. 
the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son, sight of the son. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. David, what you did, you did deceitfully and closed doors and tried to keep it secret. Well, the consequences that will come on you will be in front of everyone. How could this be grace? That's a good question, isn't it? Let me ask you something. When David heard this and Listen, by the next chapter or so, it starts happening. It happens immediately. We're going to see that in just a second. It feel like grace. Consequences are grace. Why? Because they are reminders of the seriousness of sin before a holy God. They're reminders to us. They are, listen, this is important. They serve as God's preserving means of grace in your life. Consequences do not go away with forgiveness and restoration. God oftentimes leaves the consequences, and He did in David's life, and they are grace because they are a reminder of how serious his sin was before God. We're going to see that in Psalms 51. Consequences are grace. Listen, because they remind us sin is not private, and our sin affects others. And many people have to live with the consequences of our sin. Verse 14. Nevertheless. Good nevertheless. God forgives him. We're going to see that. as We unfold Psalms 51. But here are the consequences. Nevertheless because. By this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. And the child does die. It's quite a story if you read it. David fasts and prays on his face before God. And when he finds out the child is dead, he gets up from his, takes a bath, gets cleaned up and gets something to eat. And someone says, why are you, why are you doing that? Why, why such a change of response? He said, well, as long as... As the child was alive, I, I was praying that maybe the Lord would, would spare him. But now I know that my child will not come back to me, but I will go to him. That's a sobering consequences. And listen, it is important. We lost our first child. Not every bad thing in your life is due to sin. Matter of fact, if you read your Bible, you'll find out that people do bad stuff to us all the time precisely because we're doing what's right. So don't make the consequences in your life, and Norman did for someone else, and don't make something else you see in someone's life that we do not know the facts about and say, that was probably consequences of sin. You don't know that. God's Word spoke to David what his consequences were, and that was exactly what they were. God's word dictates those things, not mine and your capricious judgment, okay? So that's important tension, lest we start seeing this everywhere. It's funny, isn't it? And I can always see problems in other people's life a whole lot easier than I can see my own. That's why we need someone sometimes to speak God's word into our life. 
I want you to see, it's not in your notes, but I want you to see this. This is so, it's just, for me, it's breathtaking. I want you to see, you'll have to add this in. The grace of God's unchanging promise. I mean, just think about what we just talked about, right? I mean, David's got victory, but I mean, when David blew it, he blew it with passion, right? He blew it with both hands on the, you know, woo! I mean, he, he blew it. So what about the seed? Remember? God promised David from your line the Messiah would come. I will set up a kingdom. What about that? 2 Samuel chapter 12. Look at verse 24. His child is gone. Listen, you need to feel that this morning. Bathsheba lost her baby. You should be a little greedy right now. David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent a message to Nathan about a prophet. So he called his name Zedidiah because of the Lord. God's promise to David and to his people never changed. Did David fail? Yes, he did. Did God lovingly correct him? Absolutely. Did he give him consequences that's going to last the rest of his life? You bet he did. But God in his goodness not only forgave David, his promises remains unchanged. David's sin did not stop God's plan or God's purposes. Praise the Lord. Right? Somebody ought to say amen right there. That's a good. Your sin can't stop God's eternal redemption plan. Mm. Psalms 51 is written to remind us, God's people, of God's redeeming and restoring grace for us. So what? Or maybe could say, now what? First, so what? Am I descending into the deceitfulness of sin? It could be on the precipice. Remember, it started with actually victory. What, was the, what is the condition of one's heart when they're experiencing great times of blessing and victory? This is the first lingering look. We have to catch ourselves. The first lingering look we have despised the Word of God. Right there. Remember the problem of evil. In this world, began with what? Did the Bible really say? That's where it started, wasn't it? The serpent to Eve. Did the Bible really say? Have you found yourself rationalizing something that you're doing that you don't, you know that it doesn't lift up Christ? I mean, just ask yourself the, the glorifying question. Does this lift up Christ or not? The answer is no, then why am I sitting there rationalizing in my own life? More importantly, and I think this needs to be is clear, I, it's possible unknowingly, even ignorantly, we could be helping others descend into the evilness of deceitful sin. We can be aiding. How do we do that? 
We do it oftentimes as parents with our kids. Especially, I mean, do you know that there are parents that are letting their boys stay in the house till they're almost 30? So here's the question. What do you think that's going to do in his life? When he does not have to get out and get a job and experience the stress. He needs to get out, get a job, and get a wife and feel the stress of life on him. We do them no good by letting them live in stressless leisure their life. It is to set them on a precipice that is dangerous. Even as a non-Christian, we should understand this truth. We should teach our children that idleness is dangerous. Teach them how to work. We teach them how to love their Lord. We got to do this to our friends. Listen, you got to feel Nathan's stress right there. Nathan could have lost his head for what he was saying. We've heard this analogy used in many ways. Me and you go camping. We'll both fall fast asleep, but you're a little bit lighter sleeper than I am. And a hungry mountain lion comes into the to the to the to the cave. And you wake up and you see it. What's love at that moment? Truth? Or sitting there going, Stephen Shore is sleeping good. You know, I'm just going to tiptoe out of here and he'll be okay. Would, you, would, that, would that be love? No. When you understand the descending nature of sin and where it leads, the only loving thing to do is to speak the truth whether it's our children or whether it's our friends or our family, and no matter what it costs us, listen, they are on the brink of life and death. We need to beseech them to choose life. How am I responding to the Lord's grace? This sets us up for next week. So I just want us to, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Psalms 51, verse 1 and 2. Remember, all I just told you is the context for this. This is what David has just went through. David writes, Psalms 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Is there hope for us? Is there hope for our friends and our families and those that we love that have found themselves in the depths of sin? And listen, sin always comes with a couple of friends. Guilt and shame. Is there hope? What David did. There's hope. Where is our hope found? Galatians 4, 4 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so what we are about to do in a few minutes is come to the table. And what I want you to do this morning is remember, Christ did not just die to forgive your sin. And He did, and praise the Lord. You see that... He forgives our sin. But He also 
frees us from the enslaving power of our sin. And listen, our friends and our family who are lost haven't experienced that freedom. And we have. He redeemed us. But not only, look at the text. Verse 5 says this, Galatians 4 verse 5, so that we might receive adoption. So you come today to remember that our Jesus didn't just not forgive us. He does not just free us from sin and forgive us our debt. He adopted us into his family. And we come today to remember that. We come to the table to remember there's hope in the gospel. That no one is hopeless. No one is outside the reach of God. David taught us that this morning, I hope. So why we're going to do communion for the next few weeks. You're going to see this every Sunday for the next few weeks. As we work through Psalms 51 and we see repentance, repentance. Let me ask you something. When's, if, if in your week, how many sermons have you heard on repentance this week? We're going to hear a lot about it over the next month. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do in just a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to come as we sing. And you're going to take both elements in your hand. And you're going to go back to your seat. I'm going to lead you to take them in a minute. But I want you to sing the, song, the worship with the elements in your hand. Why is that so important? It's important this morning because you and I didn't bring an animal under our arms this morning. Did we? We come with empty hands. We come with only what? Faith. Faith in what Christ has done. This is what we come to the table. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves. And so it's what we're going to do for the next couple minutes. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says that if we sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now let us bow our heads. And let us pray and ask for the Lord's forgiveness and restoring grace in our life before we come to the table. Let's pray together. Lord, in the silence of this moment, we acknowledge that you are God and we are not. We could not save ourselves. Lord, we acknowledge that the blood of bulls and goats was never meant to give forgiveness of sin, that it had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be both God, it had to be man. Your son became a man and died for us. Lord, we remember that today. That we are allowed as your children to come before you right now and ask for your forgiveness and your grace for our sin because of your son and what he's done on our behalf. And so, Lord, we come now and offer our specific sins. Any that, are, that you bring to our minds, that you bring and expose, Lord, we lay them before you and ask you to forgive us and thank you for the blood of Christ. It 
has saved us, that does save us, that will save us, is him that we remember now. In Jesus' name. God's word says, Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many will be made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the trespass increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gives us the privilege of coming to his table, and we do not take this privilege lightly. God calls us as his people. He calls me as your pastor to fence the table, which simply means a reminder for the table is for those who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. For this table cannot save you. It is a reminder to those who are saved. This is not a time to teach your children through letting them partake, but simply let them to quietly reflect on the gospel. For 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says, Whoever therefore eats and drinks the bread of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of our Lord. Look at, listen to verse 28. Let a person examine himself, then so eat the bread and drink the cup. So in just a minute, again, we're going to come to the table. And as we sing, here's what you're going to have in your hands. We're going to come down. You're going to get both elements. You're going to go back to your seat. And I want you to hold them as we sing. And I want you to recall to your mind as we sing about it. The body of Christ and the blood of Christ. I want you to call to mind that we no longer have to bring an animal sacrifice. For our Jesus has died for us once and for all. I want us to remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, as we stand to our feet and sing, let us come to the tables, get both elements, and go back to your seat.